our song leaders and and um, on the heels of our singing workshop, uh, these men who are leading regularly now, now that we've lost Bobby on a regular basis, they are working hard and uh, doing a great job. And um, we all want to grow in uh, our abilities and talents as we can, as uh, not just song leaders, but in whatever we do in the Lord's kingdom. Uh, whatever our hand finds to do, we want to do it with all of our might. And when it comes to song leaders, we want the hand to come down on the first beat of the next measure. No. <laughs> All right. But uh, we appreciate uh, these men and uh, what they do in leading us in such a very, very vital aspect of our worship to God. And I personally appreciate all of those who have done that and appreciate Bobby and his work over the years and, uh, and leading us. And uh, he, like Brian said, he's not completely out of the picture. We're not letting him completely off the hook either. We uh, deeply appreciate all of those at White Oak who contribute so much in so many ways. And uh, we love and appreciate all of you for the talents that you use in the, the kingdom of God. Um, we're on the screen, aren't we? Yeah, good. That, that Martin's switching back and forth. He's doing a great job up there, too, getting us uh, back from one source to another. As you can see, we are looking at verses from Psalm 119 as I mentioned this morning uh, we are going to be looking at the psalm that really exalts the Word of God and I appreciate the selection of give me the Bible as our first song tonight because we are emphasizing the Bible the Word of God and there is not a psalm uh, in all of Scripture among all of the Psalms that exalts the Word of God uh, in repeated fashion and yet in tremendously varied fashion without a great deal of repetition and yet in a hundred and seventy-six verses there are very few of those verses that do not mention in some way uh, by some designation the Word of God. We're not beginning with verse 1 because in some previous lessons we have looked at the first, uh, the first uh, 40 verses of this psalm, but we are, as we begin with verse 41 through verse 48 tonight, and we're going to finish this psalm, the Lord willing, on Sunday nights, uh, and let it serve as a reminder to us of just how precious indeed and how powerful indeed the Word of God is. We don't know who the author of the psalm is. There have been those who have attributed it to David, and it is Davidic in, in many ways, and it may very well have been penned by the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he has, uh, has been called. Uh, some attribute it to a later uh, time, but regardless of the author, we know that the ultimate author is God through the Holy Spirit because it is inspired of God. It is a God-breathed psalm. It is also an interesting psalm from the standpoint that it is an acrostic of all acrostics and using uh, methods to, uh, to help enhance one's memory of a sermon or a lesson is something that uh, I seek to do on a fairly regular basis with sometimes an acrostic uh, where uh, each point begins with a, uh, a certain uh, letter that form a certain word, the key word of the sermon, and uh, alliteration where each uh, 
uh, each word begins with the same letter as you outline a, a lesson. And these uh, mnemonic devices are certainly uh, valuable and uh, helpful, uh, though we don't want to stretch them beyond uh, what is reasonable and natural to uh, help us remember. But this is the acrostic of all acrostics. This is the acrostic to end all acrostics, if you will. There are 22 letters in the uh, Hebrew alphabet. And uh, we have all 22 of those letters covered here in this acrostic uh, psalm. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is covered in the first uh, eight verses. And then the next eight verses, the second letter, and so on through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each paragraph devoted to each letter of the alphabet has eight verses in it. Each one of those eight verses begins with the letter that is represented of the Hebrew alphabet in those eight verses. For example, if you go back to the beginning of Psalm 119, and you have perhaps in the heading in your Bible, and my Hebrew pronunciation would be uh, horrific, I'm sure, but it looks like Aleph or something to that effect, A-L-E-P-H, uh, transliterated. That's the first letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. There are eight verses in this paragraph before we get to the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, B-E-T-H, and uh, there, there are eight verses there. But back to the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, if you were reading this, of course, in Hebrew, you would see that every one of those eight verses begins with that first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then when you come to the second paragraph, B-E-T-H, every one of those eight verses devoted to that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, every verse begins with that second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's the way it is written through all 176 verses. Now, why was it written that way? Uh, we don't know why the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write it that way, perhaps as a mnemonic device, as a, a means of being able to memorize this great psalm and to make it easier to, to memorize all of this psalm because it is powerful indeed as it exalts the Word of God. And so that briefly is the structure of the psalm, though it doesn't have a theme as such or a progressive theme, but the overall theme would be the power and the preciousness of the word of Almighty God. With that brief reminder to us by way of background, then we come back to verse 41. The Hebrew uh, letter of the alphabet transliterated at that heading in my Bible, W-A-W. -W. And every one of these verses, 41 through 48, if you were reading it in Hebrew, would begin with that letter. But here, the psalmist says, Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your what? Word. Again, there's a verse among most of the verses in this 176-verse psalm that mentions the Word of God by some designation. Now, before we go further, I hope you have your Bibles open. After you see the word Word in verse 41, verse 42, you also see the word Word again. 
Verse 43, the word of truth, as well as what? For I have hoped in your what? Ordinances. Verse 44, so shall I keep your what? Law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your what? Precepts. I will speak of your what? Testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed, and I will delight myself, verse 47, in your what? commandments which I love, my hands also I will lift up to your commandments which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You see how many expressions there are in these eight verses about the Word of God? Going back from verse 48, statutes, commandments, testimonies, law, word, ordinances, at least six different expressions in eight verses, all of which refer to the Word of God. There is no psalm that exalts the Word of God, as does this one. Now back to verse 41. To simply glean from these verses that are indeed emphasizing tremendously the Word of God, but doing so in a way that does not involve repetition. Uh, what book other than the Bible could treat a subject like this with the kind of variety with which this psalm treats it so that the writer is not just simply meeting himself coming back, as it were, repeating himself over and over again, but exalting the Word of God in virtually every line and yet doing so in a variety of ways, allowing us to glean the greatest benefit from a study of these verses. Verse 41 again, let your what? Mercies come also to me, O Lord. Let your mercies. It's been thought that perhaps, based upon the nature of these words, that the writer here was an individual who was troubled, uh, perhaps in a period and a time of, of doubt and needed indeed, uh, in particular. The mercies, plural, not just mercy, but the mercies in so many ways of Almighty God. You know, I found a statement that is attributed to uh, DeLitch. Uh, it was uh, found in Burton Kaufman's material on this psalm that I could not help but be struck by and thought it was extremely timely in terms of our study of this psalm and particularly what may have been troubling the writer of this psalm, distressed for whatever reason, troubled, persecuted, but I was struck by this statement from DeLitch that Brother Kaufman included in his material that said this. See if this sounds familiar to our time and our day, our situation perhaps. The poet is a young man who finds himself in a situation which is clearly described. He is derided, oppressed, persecuted by those who despise the divine word. Apostasy is all around him, particularly by a government hostile to true religion. He is in bonds, expecting death. In the midst of it, God's word is his comfort and wisdom. The whole psalm is a prayer for steadfastness in the midst of an ungodly, degenerate race in the midst of great trouble.
I could not help but identify with that statement in terms of where we are in the world in which we live. We are, and we've mentioned this before, in a period of time when the Word of God, the divine Word, is under attack, where apostasy is all around us, perhaps as we have never seen it in our lives. And it is certainly a time in which we need the comfort and the wisdom that comes only from the divine word of God. And therefore I see the particular benefit in the time in which we find ourselves of spending a great deal of time with the 119th Psalm. Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord. Your mercies. Oh, we appreciate mercy from, from our fellow man, and there are times when we need that compassion and we need that mercy, but our ultimate need is for the mercy of God. And as we pointed out here, it is plural, as though in this especially difficult time, whatever it was for the inspired writer of this psalm, he needed mercies on every hand, as it were. Don't provide a barrier, God, between your mercies and me, but let them flow. Let those mercies come to me. And isn't that a reminder for all of us in whatever time we are, whatever situation we are, that there is never a time, good times or challenging times, where we can do without the mercies of God, where we do not need the grace of God as we spoke of God's grace this morning and the groundwork of God's grace in the book of, of Genesis. And it has been said that mercy is God's grace in action, that it is mercy, that mercy is God's grace being manifested uh, to relieve uh, the needy, those who need that mercy. And the writer here obviously was in a time, whatever it was, where he needed it desperately, but especially the mercy that is associated with what? Salvation. Notice it. Your salvation. Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord. Your salvation. Your salvation. That's where the greatest need for God's mercy is seen. In our salvation. And that's where without the mercy of God, there could be no salvation. As we pointed out this morning, grace is the groundwork of God's salvation. Grace is the grounds of salvation, but grace is not the totality of salvation. But the grace of God is appropriated through obedience to what? The word where salvation is found. Notice the statement, your salvation according to what? Your salvation according to your word. Doesn't that remind us in our day and time that there is no salvation apart from the word? and that without revelation from God there could be no salvation, and the writer of the psalm understood that, delighted in the God's precepts, delighted in God's word, hungered for his mercies, but understood that the avenue through which those mercies would come would be salvation according to the word. That word also does something else for us, as the psalmist next reminds us. So shall I have an answer. Through that word, through that word and the salvation that comes through that word, I will also have an answer for him who reproaches me. I will also have an answer for him who 
reproaches me, for I trust in your word. You remember when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil? And on, those, on that occasion, those three avenues of temptation that Satan tried to use with Jesus? And how did Jesus meet those temptations? Three words are found, repeated. It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus understood and gave us the perfect example of the answer that we must be able to give for the one who would reproach us, for the one who would taunt us, literally is the idea here, for the one who would tempt us. Now I recognize that in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter makes it abundantly clear that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us a reason of the hope that is in us, yet with meekness and fear. Some people ask questions from a good motive. Some people do not ask questions from a good motive. And the psalmist has in mind here, obviously, one who does not ask questions from a good motive, but one who taunts, one who, like the atheists of our day, who seem to be more aggressive and more active than perhaps at any other time in our lives, even to the point of putting a, a billboard outside the Super Bowl uh, stadium, and I don't believe in Hail Marys uh, from the standpoint of that religious practice, but there are those who do, and the atheist paid for a billboard that said something to the effect, the only Hail Marys that you are going to see are in a football game, or in the game, enjoy the game, words to that effect. Well, obviously we don't pray to Mary, we don't uh, engage in Hail Marys. That's a term that has been used also for the long desperation pass in football. But the billboard outside of MetLife Stadium tonight says the only Hail Mary that's of any effect is in a football game or words to that effect. Enjoy the game. They're using opportunity after opportunity to attack religion. And there are those who today, perhaps more than at any other time, are seeking to reproach us. How shall we answer? The psalmist tells us, we answer, we answer through the word of God, through the trust in the word. We appreciate those who have questions for us based upon sincere desire to know and to learn the truth. But we also have to be able to answer those who would abuse and destroy the truth, and the Word of God gives us that ability. And then the psalmist says, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances. Don't remove your truth completely from me. And this may be another passage that indicates the desperate straits in which the psalmist, the writer, found himself at this time. But please, God, he, he pleads. He pleads, don't take the word of God from me completely. That's my hope. That's the thing that is going to sustain me. That is the thing that is going to allow me to get through whatever difficult time he may have been experiencing at this time. I have hoped in your ordinances. Reminds me of 
what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is that which stands under. That's the idea of substance, that which stands under our hope. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Therefore, we hope in the Word because faith comes through the Word and hope and faith are intricately and inseparably tied together. But both have their source in what? In the Word of God. I have hoped in your ordinances. Why do we have hope of heaven? Because of this book, because of the ordinances of God, because of the Word of God. And there is no hope outside of that Word. So the psalmist says, So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. And that simply reminds us of the imperative nature of continued faithfulness and feeding upon the Word of God and appreciating and experiencing what that keeping of the law continually can do for us and a reminder that it's incumbent upon us to keep the law continually and that to depart from the law, in our case the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, which has been done away. But the principle is here, that we keep the law of Christ continually for as long as we live. And the beauty and the benefit of that is that what? And I will walk at liberty. Why? Because or for I seek your precepts. Now today, liberty for us versus the time in which these words were written has a far, far deeper and more significant meaning, doesn't it? Because the law of Moses could not absolutely forgive sin, and yet the writer under that law still understands and appreciates the power and the liberty that being blameless under that law and anticipating the ultimate sacrifice of Christ could bring. The word liberty here, we're told, literally has the idea of spaciousness or openness, of walking in a wide area. In other words, I'm freed. I'm, I'm walking in a spacious, open area. I'm not constricted by the guilt of sin. I'm not constricted by all of those things. But if I seek your precepts, I'm walking in wide open spaces, as it were. But, of course, there are New Testament passages to which we can apply this term liberty that, as I said, has far, far deeper and more significant meaning because now we bask in the sunlight of the gospel, whereas the writer of these words was still in that, still in that moonlight age, as it were. But now today, truly, we've been freed from the law of Moses and walk in perfect liberty. As Galatians chapter 5, the book we're studying on Sunday morning, reminds us, that we now have a liberty that brings absolute freedom from the guilt of sin because we have absolute forgiveness of our sins, but we're not to abuse that liberty. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again 
with a yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage was the law of Moses there in that context, obviously. But the principle applies to not being entangled again with the yoke of the bondage of sin by going back into sin once we have experienced the liberty that the gospel of Christ brings us. Not the license to do whatever we please, as we've often said, but the liberty that we are now enjoying, free from the shackles of a law that could not provide complete forgiveness of sin, the law of Moses, free from the shackles of, of guilt, and filled with the precious promise and the hope of heaven as our ultimate home. Oh, that kind of freedom, that kind of liberty should give us courage to do this, to speak of the testimonies of God. Also, as he noticed here, before kings, and will not be ashamed. I'll speak of your testimonies before kings. You remember what Jesus told the disciples as he sent them out on that limited commission going to the Jews only in Matthew chapter 10 and at verse 18. He said to them, And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony for them and to the Gentiles. Now in their case, he said, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now they had, they had the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was promised to them. But think about it. While we don't have that miraculous manifestation of the Spirit promised to us, we do have the revelation of the Spirit. And we are fully equipped or can be equipped to stand before kings or governors and rulers and not be ashamed to declare to them or to anyone the testimony of the Lord if indeed we have prepared ourselves to do so. It's not going to be given to us in some miraculous way though. But indeed, we need to prepare ourselves and never be ashamed of the gospel. If you had an opportunity to present it to a king, to a ruler, to a president, or to a neighbor in religious error. Will you shirk that responsibility? Will you be ashamed of that gospel at that time? No, we should be willing to declare it before kings, the psalmist reminds us, let alone to our neighbors. And remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, and verse uh, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The psalmist reminds us that I should love the word, appreciate the word and what the word has done in my life to the extent that I will look for opportunities to speak of that word and to teach that word to kings, to rulers, to authorities, and never to be ashamed. You look at Acts chapter 26, remember on that occasion, when Paul stood before King Agrippa without shame. And indeed, 
indeed preached Christ to him to the extent that Agrippa said what? Almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul wasn't ashamed to speak before kings. The psalmist was not either. And then he says, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. That really is a thought that takes us back to the very beginning of the Psalms. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he what? Reads a chapter every day. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> but that's not what the verse says. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And that's what the final verse of our study tonight reminds us. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will what? Meditate on your statutes. The 119th Psalm, exalting the Word of God. The Lord willing, we'll continue that study all the way through this beautiful and powerful psalm as we continue next week. Tonight, can you say that you are exalting the Word of God? Not by lips, though that's an important way to do it, but most importantly, by your life. You cannot if indeed you have not obeyed the gospel of Christ. Salvation according to your word. Let your mercies come to me, even to me. Salvation, the psalmist pleaded, according to your word. Tonight salvation according to the word is available to everyone here tonight who has not already availed himself or herself of that salvation. It comes by a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you've done those things, but you know that you have not continued to exalt the word by lip and by life, but have wandered and need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that. As we stand together to sing, we encourage you to come.